may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. May the Lord bless the reading of the word. Thank you, Steve. Good morning. Uh, just to mention I'm excited, and that's true. Um, it, uh, it's, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, I remember being in church as a... Uh, 10 or 12-year-old boy in the pastor or maybe a visiting preacher, revival sermon, would say something like that. It's good to be with you. And at that point, I was like, man, we've got a long way to go. Um, I'm wearing clothes I don't want to wear. Um, I'm sitting quietly somewhere that I don't really want to be. Um, I'm thinking about lunch and being outside. So if it's good for you, I'm happy. It is not good for me, but we'll grin and bear it, right? Um, my son is nodding with me. Um, you know, by God's grace, 30-some-odd years later, he changes the uh, the hearts and the affection. Excuse me. Sorry. Um, it is good to be here, right? It's exciting. It is good to be here. So Justin mentioned, um, well, he, he mentioned I'm going to be here. He didn't mention why. So he has been away studying for a Ph.D. program. And one of the things that we benefit from uh, week in, week out, with his uh, preaching and exposition of the Word, particularly in this series in Exodus, is we have seen uh, the gospel, the seeds of the gospel, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout Moses' work, his mediator. And so, uh, Justin, thank you. Right. Thank you for tracing that through right, where we see that in the, uh, in the New Testament. We're going to see more of it here with Psalm 90. And so that's the situation right, that we've been doing this study of Exodus for all of spring, the prior fall. Uh, the complication, one complication that I've thought about as we listen to Scripture speak to us, uh, is God's got a very wide range of emotions and passions that we have seen in different places. Uh, we have seen awesome power splitting the Red Sea, bringing plagues, bringing the destroyer, right, taking the firstborn. On the other hand, we've seen him set up laws that protect the widow and the orphan, and so we get something of the kindness of God's heart in those laws. Right? And we see a very wide range and a very wide, dynamic, passionate God. The implication there is, well, what, what do we make of it? How are we to come to terms with a God that is that broad, that is that dynamic? Um, my position this morning is that growing in that knowledge right, over the course of our lifetime, that is the very essence of eternal life. So we begin our walk at the moment of justification, and we'll see in a couple of the verses later today uh, that that reality, right, uh, knowing God personally, that changes. It's dynamic because He is dynamic, because He is broad, because He has uh, a range that far exceeds ours. So my ask of you, right, the action this morning is if you'll walk with me, I think there are three distinct phases in Psalm 90. Hopefully you had a chance to pick up some of the sermon notes. And the benefit to you, as we begin to be confronted with the passions of God, the Scripture equips us to deal with that, right, to tap into the fullness of who He is, right, and to grow in the depth 
uh, of the life that he's called us to. Right? So the introduction, the setting, Scripture tells us this is Moses' prayer. Uh, think about Moses' biography. Right? He, he grew up in the house of Egypt, was called away. Uh, he has seen the Lord bring judgment on Egypt. I mentioned the destroyer in the Passover. He's been protected by the lamb's blood right? at the Passover. Uh, he has been up on the mountain to receive the very words and the very law of God on stone tablets twice. Uh, he's brought that down. He's explained the law to the people, and he's seen them say, yeah, absolutely, he will be our God. We will be his people only to turn around very quickly, very briefly, break that covenant, reject that relationship. He's had to pray on their behalf, right? petition God uh, not to wipe them off the face of the map, uh, he has seen the Lord deliver judgment in particular to that generation that grumbled and said, they will not enter my rest in Canaan, right? And he has seen and known people personally die as a result of God's judgment. That's the man, right? That's the background. That's the biography in a very short order uh, of the psalm or of this prayer that we get to read and we get to study. And so we're going to look at it in three places. One, the contrast between God and man a cry for reconciliation and satisfaction, and then how the cross resolves those things. Okay, The contrast, the cry, and ultimately the cross. All right, so Moses starts this prayer, and if you read in verses 1 through 3 with me, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had formed the earth or the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uh, the word Lord that he starts with is telling. Uh, it is not a personal name in this instance. It's a title. He's using a title for God. It's Adonai. It's master. Right? The very first word out of his mouth is master. Uh, by God's grace, those of us who are Christians, we petition God as Father and Abba, and we should. Right now, in this moment, Moses doesn't make that presumption. Right? When's the last time you started a prayer with the word master? Right? It tends to be a little bit offensive to our pride, to our autonomy, to our will, the things that we have in mind. And that's the place where Moses starts, is you are master. He said, you have been our community, right? our source of community, our dwelling place. He uses the word refuge. Uh, you've been so for the generations that Moses has led. You've been so for the patriarchs. You started community with man, with Adam and Eve, all the way back in the garden. Uh, beyond that, Lord, before man was formed, you created all the earth. You brought forth mountains. And Lord, you were there before creation itself. You were from everlasting to everlasting. Right? Master, infinite source of refuge and strength. You were eternal. Uh, in verse 3, he says, you're the one who returns men to their death, right? Neither life nor death is something that happens by chance, something that surprises God, right? It is a choice. It is a decision on behalf of God when life begins and ends for all of us, right? Sitting here today, it was true of Moses and the Israelites then, and it's a harsh word. Uh, there are several words I'm going to touch on as we go forward today. The first one here, when he says you return to dust, the word there is crush. It's pulverize, right? The idea of just smashing something, that that's the finality and the authority of God's judgment when he decides that it's time for death. And so we have this immense 
confession, right, of God's strength, of His glory, of His grandeur, of His eternality. That's who Moses is addressing in prayer, the very author of life and death. He then switches over to man in verses 5 through 10, and he gives us three images. So in contrast, you sweep them, men, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. The theme there, gosh, we are frail and we are transitory. So if you think about an oncoming flood right down a raging river, maybe a tidal wave, just taking no heed of man standing in front of it being washed away, just just like that. Think about a dream. Right? You wake up in the morning and say, that felt real. It seems so real in the moment. And you sort of have trouble even recalling the details. That's how ephemeral we are in comparison. Or morning grass. I think of northern New Mexico and southern Colorado. We've been there in the summer. You go outside in the morning, it's almost cold. You need a cup of coffee. There's dew on the grass, the wild grass. It's pretty, right? It's very green. About 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there is intense direct heat at eight or 10,000 feet in elevation, and it just wilts, right? It just has no staying power. Yeah. So you begin to feel the contrast here, right? And Moses is just confessing, Lord, you're different, you're different. We, we are not like you. And so with that, uh, look here in verse 7 and 8, where, again, Moses is confessing and pondering this relationship uh, that stands between them. For we, we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. And you've said our iniquities before you, our secret sins are in the light of your presence. Right, so we, we have these just polar opposites between God and man. And I said, you know what? We can't withstand your wrath and your judgment. Uh, the sinful behavior that we have provokes a holy hatred of God on that sin. Right, It invites his judgment. Uh, the words here are, get, again, when, to give the picture of wrath that Moses is using, it is a red face with flared nostrils. Right, That's the face of God towards the sin of man. And he knows it, right? I mentioned earlier that this is not just academic. Moses has known people in that grumbling generation who have died and were denied entering into Canaan because of their sin. Right? So it's not, it's not theoretical. Right? He knows what the judgment of God is like. That's sort of the buildup in verse 8. And this is an intense psalm if you haven't begun to gather that flavor, right? Uh, in verse 8, again, you've set our iniquities before you, right? So it's in this red, hot, blinding light of God's fury on sin and judgment. He says, you, you have brought out into open sight the secret sins, right? He doesn't just say you've brought our sin into your light. You've brought our secret sins into your light. And that's an uncomfortable thought. That ought to make us squirm. We could have a long list of sin. Uh, you see a lot of sexual sin for various reasons. You see pornography. You see affairs. You see alcoholism. You see greed. Uh, you see self-righteousness. Right? That I've got my act together, and as a result, I am good, and God owes me. Right? You see different types of sin. And 
some of these we would all be aghast, right? If, if the Lord put on the screen our sin, right? If he just videotaped what it is that I don't want to tell you and what you don't want to tell us, that's the intensity, right? That's the confession of Moses as God. Those things are before you. You are angry about that sin. You are the one that rightly judges those things. We're not going to be able to withstand that. And one, just as a sidebar, one of the things to note there in that little litany of sins that I gave you, if you'll notice, they're all desires, ultimately for security, companionship, safety, friendship. Right? We need pleasures of different sorts, and they are God-given legitimate pleasures that we taint in illegitimate ways. Right? Those are what those sins are. We... In our natural fallen state, we can't enter in, say, to marriage the way it was designed to be. It tends to be broken, and we certainly, certainly lack the strength to enter into a right relationship with God in our own standing. Right? We would just be incinerated in this moment. This is the heat, this is the intensity, this is the contrast that Moses wants us to hear. And so in verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh, right? It is oppressive. It's just a gasp, right? That's, that's our state before a holy God. And so the best of our 70 or 80 years end with a gasp, with a whipper. What an incredible contrast, right? A hopeless contrast, really. One of my favorite songs is by the David Crowder Band. It's called Holy Yours. Some of you may be familiar with it. Holy with a W-H-O-L-L, not holy. Holy, entirely, yours. And I did have the thought for a moment, wouldn't it be cool if I could sing that? Um, I knew I'd have to look out and see my family. And I would see big, round eyes, right? So I'm not going to do that. And it wouldn't be good for any of us. Uh, but I am going to read you the lyrics, right? He has captured artfully, lyrically, uh, these themes of Moses, the first part of Moses' prayer. I am full of earth, and you are heaven's worth. I'm stained with dirt. I'm prone to depravity. You are everything that is bright and clean. The antonym for me, right? You are divinity. That's the contrast. That's the difference that he wants us to feel as we work through this prayer with him. Right? Point one, we are not like God. We are different. Point two, faced with this contrast, Moses just moves straight in to a prayer at the end of his psalm, to a request uh, for a couple of different things. Reconciliation, and even more than that, satisfaction. Right, so all those sins, all those things that we look for, we, they're going to satisfy us, they're going to bring comfort, they're going to ease the pain, they're going to give me hope, they're going to take the load off of my back. All of that misplaced satisfaction, Moses says, we need satisfaction in you. Don't have any right to ask for it, certainly no demand, but nonetheless, that is his cry. Okay, So if we'll look in verses 14, and seven, 14 through 17, and Steve read this, and this is a great fixture, right? A great way to think about this psalm. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, 
that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen evil. Right? We have known judgment. We want satisfaction in equal measure, God. We want to brag about you, right? In the next verse, 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And I'm going to pause there for just a minute. Um, Do you see the boldness of this prayer? Right? He's come in confession and acknowledgement of what the state is and says, but this is what I want. We want to be in a place, Lord, where we talk about you, where we say, the Lord split the Red Sea. I was there. You should have seen it. It was incredible. Or uh, the Lord redeemed that man. He healed that woman. That was incredible. I wish he could have been there. He wants to be able to brag about the Lord to his kids, right, to their children. And he presses further. That's not where it stops. And I think this is the apex of his cry. But he says, Lord, let your favor be upon us. And it's, it really is bold. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. Uh, the word favor, right, when you do the study, this is the idea of the Lord delighting in us. That's an incredible thought. Uh, some of you are grandparents. This is probably the best illustration I can think of. Uh, It's one thing to raise kids, right? You learn as you go. By God's grace, parents are sanctified. Hopefully kids are trained up in the ways of the Lord. Uh, But there's a take two that grandparents get. They kind of know what's coming, and then you can see when they meet a grandchild, in a lot of cases, the expectations, the hopes, the joy, the delight that they take in that grandchild. The grandchild is oblivious, but the grandparent knows. Just excited, doting on a grandchild. That's, I think, a weak metaphor, right? A weak picture when Moses says, I want you to delight in us, Lord. Let your favor, let your delight be upon me. No right to ask for it. But nonetheless, that's the cry of his heart. That's what I want. The word upon, it's an important word, right? It's a preposition that doesn't seem that important. The same word, if you go back in Genesis and uh, Genesis 2, when God was working through creation, he created the heavens and the stars and the light, and he said, let the light be upon the earth, right? Just blankets the earth in the heavenly display of light. Genesis chapter 6, when God brought judgment with the flood, absolutely inundated the entire globe, the water was upon the earth. That's the word that Scripture uses. Right? And so, again, I'm repeating myself, the word boldness doesn't do it justice. God, or Moses is saying, I want your delight, your beauty, and your favor, and I want it to be upon me, in me, saturating me, the same way you sent light and the same way you sent the flood. That's what I want. Right? That's heavy. And it's beautiful. And it ought to stir our hearts a little bit. Right as we hear the yearning that Moses has for this deep satisfaction and this reconciliation, that is the cry of my heart, Lord, in the face of the fact that we are starkly different. Hugely contrasting, but this is what I want. Hear my cry. That's point two. So how do we move from the contrast that he sets up in the beginning of the psalm to the cry of his heart at the end? 
Right? The short answer there is the cross. But let's come back and see why and where in the particulars of this psalm that that's the case. Okay. So I skipped over it now, but if you look in verse 11, after he has made this confession, before he goes to what he wants, this is the pivot point of the psalm in verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who can enter in and withstand that kind of judgment, Lord? It's a little bit hopeless. In Moses' mind, likely rhetorical. Who can enter in? Who can withstand? Who can absorb that kind of heat and of judgment? A couple of more interesting words here. And he says, who can consider? The word consider is the same word knowing, yada. So the way that Adam knew Eve as a wife, that's the kind of knowing that we're talking about. Uh, same word again when Adam and Eve sinned. They realized that they were naked. They needed to be covered. God was coming. They were ashamed. They wanted to withdraw. That sort of realization at the moment of sin, they knew they sinned. Right? Know it to my bones. Know it to the heart of who I am. Right? It's, it's a deep experiential kind of knowing. And so Moses is asking the question, given the heat of your judgment on the sin that we have, who can come in and not just sort of bend and or, uh, you know grin and bear it and fight through it? Who can know it? Who can consider it? Who can absorb it? The same way a man knows his wife. Right? This is not a cursory sort of knowledge of God's wrath and judgment. And he says, who can know your wrath? The last little tagline of this verse, according to the fear of you. Uh, we typically, uh, rightly maybe, interpret the word fear for reverence. And it certainly includes that. Uh, it goes deeper. This is stark terror. Okay, And that sort of stands to reason, given the judgment and the heat and the wrath of God on sin, this is not a pleasant environment. Right, so to consider and to know and to absorb, yeah, that's terrifying. Right, outright terror. Outright terror. Then in verse 13, he gives us another element, right, another inkling of what it takes to get from the contrast to the cry. How are we going to get there? Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity. He didn't say, Lord, we've tried really hard. That ought to be good enough. You owe us. No. Right? He just said, it's, it's, it's up to you, God. I have this incredible cry, and I hope something in your heart stirs with pity. That's what I want. So on the one hand, he says, we need someone who can consider and know and absorb the fullness of God's wrath. On the next, he says, well, it really depends on your pity. And so which is it? So, no surprise, I started this with the cross, so let's jump forward into the gospel and see clearly where these two things come together, because the answer is yes, yes, it's both. It's both. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn with me, if you would, for a minute to John chapter 17. And hold your finger on Psalm 90, we may go back there. Uh, we're going to look just in John 17, the first five verses 
the setting there is Jesus has just finished eating the Passover dinner with his disciples. He's been sharing his heart with them. And in a few moments, he and the disciples are going to walk outside east of the city. They will head to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, But right now, he's beginning uh, a prayer to the Father after having finished his conversation with the disciples, right? So he's just finished the conversation, and he now looks heavenward, right? And he voices this prayer. John, hearing it, remembering it, records it for us. Okay, that's the setting. So when Jesus had spoken these words, this was the conversation he had with the disciples, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Uh, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." There's an entire chapter that goes on with just deep, rich, you know, we we could spend months and years trying to understand all of this. I'm going to stop in those first five verses. And there are just two things I want to point out here, right, in this prayer that Jesus has to the Father. Uh, I mentioned at the outset here that there is a definition that Christ gives us for eternal life in verse 3. This is eternal life that they know you, that they consider you. Entering into that knowledge and that relationship, that's eternal life, that they would know the Father and that they would know the Son. That's what Moses was asking for. I want to delight in you. I want to be satisfied in your love. That's a rich relationship. That's what I want. Christ says, what you're asking for, Moses, that's eternal life. And then in verse 5, notice Jesus sort of stepping beyond time and space. Glorify me in your own presence with what? With glory that I had with you before the world existed. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but there is some relationship here that Jesus is remembering, if that's even the right word to use when we're trying to understand something of the eternal nature and relationship between the Father and the Son. But I I want that glory. I want that relationship that I had with you, Father, before creation. All that Moses could do at the beginning of Psalm 90 was confess, yes, Lord, you are everlasting and you are eternal. And I think Jesus would agree with that and says, yeah, I was there. He sure is. And he was. And so am I. I know what it is that you're asking for, Moses. I've experienced it and I can give it to you. I'm going to jump to a couple other Gospels now, uh, but that's the beginning of Jesus' prayer I'm going to pick up a couple of verses. You don't need to turn, but both Matthew and Luke also record some important details of the night that Christ and the disciples were in Gethsemane. So in Matthew's gospel in chapter 26, he notices, he said, Christ began to be sorrowful. It's an interesting word, again, because Christ had predicted his death several times to the disciples. They may or may not have understood what he was talking about, but Christ knew it was coming. There's something different now. He began to be sorrowful. And after the disciples notice it, then Christ voices it. He says, I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
And Matthew records that he prostrates himself three times on the ground, face down, in the dirt. Luke, in chapter 22, same episode, just different perspective, different man. He uses the term agony to describe Christ's physical state here. And that's kind of fitting. You remember Luke was a physician, right? He was acquainted with some of the particulars of the human body. One of the details that I find just striking is Christ is in this agony. An angel appears to strengthen Christ physically. And after that happens, Christ has the strength to fall face down into the dirt and sweat uh, drops of blood. Right? You would sort of intuitively think, well, if he was strengthened by an angel, then, you know, feel good, ready to go. But only having had that angelic ministry to his body, it only gives him strength to the point he prostrates himself. Right? And blood comes out in the midst of, uh, of tears and of sweat. Right? This is intense. There's no doubt about it. And if you're familiar with the story of Gethsemane, it only illustrates in, in incredible detail what Moses talked about, who can know, who can withstand the fullness of your wrath, God? Well, Christ could. Right? And he started his prayer a few minutes ago. I want what we had in eternity past. So there's just this incredible contrast of what Moses is looking for, what he's desiring, the desire of our hearts, well, Christ is uniquely qualified to withstand the fullness of God's judgment and the wrath and the heat and the pain and the suffering because on the one hand, he knows the fellowship is being withdrawn and he began to be sorrowful, right? He's not been beat. He's not on the cross. There's been no physical damage to his body. He is aware of what's coming. And for some reason in God's providence and God's sovereign nature, he made it so that the Son fully grasped right, the awfulness of separation and of judgment. And it just sinks beautifully with the way that Moses phrased it. Who could withstand? Who can absorb? Who can know the fullness of that judgment the way a man knows his wife? Right, the way that we understood for the first time as a race that we were sinful, right? When Adam and Eve... Right, this is a horrific, painful knowing... And so you, uh, you see, right, you see the restlessness of Christ. If you remember the rest of the story, he says, stay here, keep watch, I'm going to go pray. And he comes back, they're asleep, and he goes and prays some more, and he comes back, they're still asleep. There is a restlessness that Christ was dealing with that night, and he knew the Father was removing his presence, and not just being left alone, not just being separated being replaced with crushing judgment. So it's, it's really no wonder at all that it overwhelmed his soul right to the point of death to understand what was coming. The flip side of all of this, Isaiah 53, I think, tells us it was the Father's will to crush the Son. Right? It was the pity of God that moved him to sacrifice the Son, that we might have the fellowship that Moses longed for. Right? Both things happening at the same time 
unbelievable suffering and judgment, being faced with the fullness of God's wrath, and at the same time, God acting in mercy right, to provide for the fellowship, right, to provide for the longing and the delight and the satisfaction that we were made for. That's intense. Right. <laughs> so, recap. Moses yearned for God's favor with everything about him. And yet he knew he was not qualified, had no right to ask for it, but he yearned for it. Christ didn't yearn for it. It was the only thing he ever knew. And it was withdrawn and replaced with crushing judgment. And so having just celebrated Easter, I think somebody moved the cross, what a wonderful time for us to go deeper into the fellowship that is ours and that came at a costly price, right? Blood bought satisfaction and fellowship is ours as believers in Christ. And I am convinced most of us putting myself in the same category, we just squander it. And there are moments here and there where we feel something of God's love and his intensity. 90% of the time we walk around in a fog, just no idea right, how precious uh, the fellowship of God is, how costly it was. And it is ours by adoption, right? Have this fellowship, have this satisfaction. And so when you look in his words, if you go back to, to Psalm 90, those, th that's his language, right? Satisfy us with your love. Let your delight and your favor be upon us. It is ours for the taking as believers in Christ. It is the essence and the ongoing reality of eternal life because we know the Lord. Right? So I, I say all of that, and I'm like, okay, now what? How do we do it? Right? How do we do it? And I've tried to leave enough time for application, and I, I hope you feel the weight of the Scripture, right, and the truths and the love and the passion and the heat that God has for us. How do we tap into that deep theology of satisfaction and of favor? How do we get there? Uh I think the answer is meditation. I'm going to talk in some detail on how you get there. It's at least one channel, one discipline through which God fills us with his presence. Uh, scripture gives us, well, before I go there, two things. Meditation is not, so what it's not is incense and chimes and symbols and chanting and sort of the Eastern thought. Okay, that is just where we empty ourselves and become one with whatever. That's not it. Okay, that's not it. Meditation is intense focus, not emptiness, focus being filled on God's Word. Right? So this is not just mysticism and you feel good and you light candles. Right? This is intense focus on the Word of God, guided by the Holy Spirit. Right? So we are tethered to His Word, filled with His truth. Okay? That's the essence of meditation. Let's be clear about that. Two, two images that Scripture gives us on meditation. Uh, Psalm 1 says the righteous man is like a tree planted by the stream. Right? The idea there is that over years and decades, the roots go deeper and they connect with life-giving water. That takes time. That doesn't happen. Jesus himself said in John 15 that I'm the vine and you're the branch, and if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Abiding doesn't just happen. 
Right? And if you think about that picture, that image of the vine and the branch, it's sort of indistinct where one ends and the other begins. And in very, very slow measure, life-giving sap moves from the vine to the branch. Same way that roots penetrate the earth to connect to the stream. It takes time. Okay, So, let's be practical. Pick a passage. Right? Pick a psalm. Pick an exchange that Christ had with somebody in the Gospels. The rich young ruler, the woman at the well, uh, father of the sick child. The Psalms are wonderful for this. Pick a Psalm. Block out time. Block out time. 20, 30 minutes, something like this. Like, you don't know how busy I am. Doesn't matter. This is worth more. This is worth more, right? Remember how much this cost that we can't find time to do it. Okay. So I find the first time I read through the psalm, if I do it out loud, it sort of just bounces off the wall, and I have really no idea what I just read. So I read it a second time, right? and I try to get some sense, what's the subject, what is going on in the psalm? So in this case, Psalm 90, Moses has a petition for the Lord. He sort of understands how hard and irreconcilable that is. Okay, I get it. That's sort of the subject. Read through it once or twice by yourself in quiet to understand what the subject is. That's two minutes, three. Okay. The rest of your time, this is where we enter in to a prayerful, meditative state. Linger over the words, asking the Spirit to work and to reveal the truth of Scripture to you. Right? He is our guide into all truth. And we're not making it up. That's why it's so key that we stay tethered to the Word. But in this case, right? let's use Moses as an example. I can see him sort of leaning on a staff, wind-burned, sun-burned, gnarled hands, gnarled feet, confessing the awesomeness and the glory of God, Master. Right? I can see those things in my mind's eye. Really powerful one, right? Spend time with Christ in Gethsemane. It's really more than we can stand, right, for long periods of time. But that is the knowing, right? Christ said it himself in 17.3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the Father, and they know me, the Son, knowing right, through the work of the Holy Spirit, commending Scripture, applying Scripture. That's how the roots go deep. That's how the vine communicates and sends sap to the branches. Right? It is the birthright that the believer in Christ has. Right? So start there. Right? So then, if you go back to the very end, and I'm almost finished, right? in, in Moses' prayer, it's after, in verse 17, that he asks, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. It's after... Right, the heart work is done. Right, that knowledge here moves about ten inches here. Right? That then he has this request. Well, now establish the work of our hands upon us. Establish the work of our hands, Lord. I want to do something meaningful with my days and with my hours. Uh, he also prays. What is it in verse twelve? Teach us to number our days, Lord. There are a finite number of days that we are allotted on this earth, right, before uh, before death, physical death comes. 
but teach us to number those days so that we may have a heart of wisdom. So Moses' two action steps here, acting in wisdom, works established by the Lord, right? meaningful activity in your day-to-day only comes after you have attacked it, so to speak, at the root in the heart. Because right? when God grabs hold of our heart, right, we begin to know the fullness of satisfaction and delight that is going to change the way you think, right? That is going to shape the way that you allocate your time, the decisions that you make during the day, right? But the battle is in the heart. It's in the affections. Then you can go out and do something meaningful with your time, right? When that's your heart, is to give glory to God, to be filled in satisfaction, right? To share this truth with maybe your spouse, your friend, your kids. Right? It's coming from a different place when you start there. Right when the Lord has done this work and satisfied you in His heart. Right? So I think it's entirely biblical to ask the question in a real way, if the average lifespan is 70 to 80 years, how much time do you have left? That's kind of uncomfortable. That's kind of rude. Well, Moses didn't ask for our blessing or our courtesy. Right? But it's, it's not kind to let friends and family walk around in a bubble. Right? How much time do you have left? What are you doing with it? If it's not this, why? Right? Make time. Make time. And, I hope you hear the satisfaction, the longing, the delight that this is not a push entirely. Boy, it's more of a pull. right? As God invites us in and He offers satisfaction and He offers delight and He offers love, He offers hope. He says, this is eternal life that you know me. right? Why wouldn't we? What else are we choosing? Where else are we going to find satisfaction? This is it. This is it. My last word, I'm speaking mostly to Christians, I think. Uh, If you have not come to a place of faith in Christ, if you have not known some of the goodness and the stirring and the longing of the heart, I I hope you are uncomfortable, maybe even jealous. I hope you are moved to consider what God holds out to you. It is there for the taking. And so grab someone, grab an elder, a deacon, grab a member of the church and say, what in the world is that guy talking about? Uh, you won't be sorry that you did. So let's pray. Father, you are from everlasting to everlasting. And not only are you our Father as Christians, you are our Master too. Lord, in fatherhood, adoption as sons and daughters, has come at an incredible cost as Christ himself was just crushed under the weight of holy judgment. And yet he did it willingly because it was your will to do so. It was your pity that moved in that moment to save us. And so, Lord, may we tap into that reality. May our roots go deep in the life-giving stream of water that comes nowhere else. So, Lord, please clear the fog. Snap us out of the coma, so to speak. 
quicken us to the sweetness and the reality and the joy, the pleasure that you offer in fellowship. God, we were made for it. Beyond that, Lord, may you be glorified in the lives of your saints when people see this sort of weird fulfillment. May they have no other place to go. I said, why would that be? Well, it's all to the glory of our God. And so, God, we, we thank you. And the words are so weak, they are not enough. So with Paul, we say, may we present our lives as living sacrifices. It is a spiritual act of worship. Lord, what more can we do? But we offer hearts, we offer minds, we offer our lives in abandon because you are worthy. And you are also kind and you are also patient, Lord. So draw us in. And thank you for your willingness to do so, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.